Hello, welcome to another episode of Return on Character podcast with me, Dan Cooper, your host. Um, I am the founder and uh, CEO of Return uh, Rock Investments, an investment strategy that allocates capital into the public markets based on the character of leaders. Uh, with us today is uh, a super special guest, uh, and and I'm. And I'm so honored to have him on, but it's going to be for different reasons than you guys think. Um, his name is Brian Smith. He's the founder of Uggs. Um, I don't know if you guys remember what Uggs are, or you probably have Uggs. My wife has two pairs, maybe three pairs in her closet. Uh, Brian Smith, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much. Great to be here. Uh, it's so cool to, to have you uh, to have you with us, you know, I I've been I've been listening to the book that you wrote, The Birth of Brand, of a Brand, Birth of a Brand by by Brian Smith, and literally have been riveted by your story. And I've not been riveted so much by the story of oh, it's Uggs and it's really cool now. I've been riveted by your transparency, and your willingness to share the struggles of giving birth to this to this idea and then your incredible analogy of of you know giving birth and then raising a child and a company and all that uh i mean honestly um brian it's been such a comfort to me to, to to read your book and to listen to your book and now to speak with you that was the purpose of it it's it's like a roadmap for entrepreneurs Especially, especially when disaster happens, because that's inevitable. Yeah, and I mean, you just do such a great job at at sharing uh, every. And I love if, if for those of you, I, I just highly recommend getting this book because what he does is he tells these wonderful stories. He tells a story of of Uggs, which is amazing. But then he does, Brian, you tell these sidebars, and you kind of it's like you step aside and you say, okay, let me give you a little lesson here. Let me tell you a little story about what's going on here and lesson I learned. And uh, it just was, it was so practically helpful. I, I, it was one of the best, you know, entrepreneur books I've ever had a chance to listen to. So, you know, I don't promote it, but it just keeps increasing in sales, you know. So I, I think the, the word of mouth and the pass along rate is really high, uh, just purely because it's, it's not, Hey, I built this and then I built that and I sold it for that. And, you know, I don't even go go there, you know. I talk about, you know, losing control or, you know, having a having a supplier, you know, do an end run around behind me. I mean, I talk about the disasters because, you know, that's really where, you know, if you look at, you know, running that business for 20 years, all the lessons came from the negative disasters that happened. Right. And that's what the book's full of is how did I ever overcome that? And that's that's why it leads into spirituality and lots of philosophy and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, I tell you, I've been on my knees, you know, many a night, uh, you know, and when you when you have nothing else to do and you have nowhere else to turn, <laughs> the spirituality kind of gets brought to the forefront. It does. Um, that's that's unfortunately it should be every day, but we only do it in crisis, you know. It's, a bit... <laughs> it's, it's so true. You know, um, 
honestly, uh, for for the the rock listeners, I had a hard hard time knowing where to start because there's so much goodness in in what Brian has has to offer in his story. But maybe as context for those of us that are kind of curious about, well, the backstory of Ugg. You know, I mean, everybody has them now. You know, but when you first showed up, you knew Australians loved them, but you couldn't figure out why Americans couldn't figure, you know, you couldn't figure out how to get it in America. Tell us how you got going initially and a little bit of the backstory. Australians are born with sheepskin knowledge. You know, you you can't rip a sheepskin. Um, You can get them wet and wear them um, with wet uh, fleece and it still insulates. Uh, you can wash them, you know, they're, they're, they're rugged in their own soft way. Uh, but Americans just had the, oh, no, we have mud and we have slush and we need rubber and we need sorrels, you know. So that mindset was very, very difficult to uh, get around. And I solved that after about four years of just being in these trade shows, getting rejected you know, on all those you know, grounds. And I finally, this woman I knew had like 14 ski shops back in New England. And, and I really wanted to get an order with her. And, and she was telling my salesman, oh, no, they, no, we need rubber in New Hampshire, you know. And, and I walked over and said, ma'am, would you mind just taking your shoe off and putting this on? Oh, no, I don't need to do that. I can see her soft. No, please just put this on, right? And she put an Ugg boot on with bare feet. And, and, and this is the sound that came out of her mouth. I heard this hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. She goes, oh, my God, these are so comfortable. I could sell these in the after ski department. And, like, she ordered, like, 20 pairs for, you know, 15 stores. It was the biggest order. I didn't even know there were orders so big, <laughs> right? That's what a surprise it was. And then when I thought of that, well, she's just one of so many in America. So that, but that was the breaking point when we got through. After that, all my sales reps all across the country, I, I told them, do not even try and sell an Ugg boot until the customer has, has worn one, you know, put it on their foot. Then you can start the sales process. But like now, all of us know what you're talking about, right? But... But you had to go through four years to find that one, what would be seemingly simple idea, and it and it pivoted everything. That's, it was a it was a turning point for the company. There, there's been a couple like that. Another good example is that you know that that first year when when I discovered I came to America looking for a business to take back to Australia, right? I never intended to stay here, and. When I got here after a few months, I realized, oh my God, there are no sheepskin boots in America. And Ugg was really well known all over Australia because there's so many sheep and every little town had a sheepskin factory that made stuff, right? You know, car seat covers and bed underlays and, you know, and boots was part of that whole makeup. So everybody understood and had a pair, but they were pretty ugly and you never wore them out. They wore them at home mostly, right? And so... When I started here, we, we went after the shoe stores and they just shut us out in Southern California, not a single order after every shoe store. But I finally figured out that all my friends that I'd met up at Malibu when I was surfing, 
they all knew about Uggs and a bunch of them owned a pair, you know, because of the, when they went on their surf trips to Australia, they bought pairs back for their buddies. So, so we started then, you know, targeting the surf shops and I, you know, had modest sales, like actually they weren't even modest, they were poor sales. Uh, so I thought I'll, I'll advertise. And so I, I got this two models, you know, a guy and a girl, the beautiful hair and beautiful makeup and big, you know, the boots were, were this big, you know, in the ad, they were the main feature of the ad. And I, and I ran that and the sales went from like 6,000 to 10,000. I go, that's crazy. It should be way more. So the next year I tried better looking models and a more expensive photographer, but the same thing happened. I went to about 20,000 and the third year I was about to give up because I, I decided it's just too hard. Americans don't understand sheepskin. I'm just going to get out of business. And so I, uh, I was uh, working on a golf course to that summer because I had to get summer jobs every year, obviously, because the sales weren't keeping me alive. Because and you weren't getting paid, right? So you no, were I, I didn't get for years for five or six years. Yeah, five or six years. For, yeah, you weren't getting paid anything, and you were peddling these things, trying yeah. to, to to make it to to, yeah. to, to break through, yeah. believing that there was a whole another continent called Australia that loved them. So there was proof. <laughs> there was proof that there were oh, humans yeah, that knew enjoyed them. Good, yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, I I decided. Well, okay, I'm. Before I advertise, I'm going to call up a buddy of mine and he was uh, running a, you know, he owned a surf shop where he was one of my customers and, and I told him about this advertising dilemma and he just goes, oh, shut up, Brian. And he calls back to these little 12, 13 year old grommets who hang out in the back of the store, you know, and he said, what do you guys think of Uggs? And every one of them just went, oh man, those Uggs, they're so fake. Have you seen those ads, those models, they can't surf. And like instantly I realized I'm sending this horrible message to my target market. And I, when I understood that, I, I was embarrassed at how fake these ads were, you know, posing people on the beach. And so I, I switched gears and I, I got a couple of young pro guys from a, a friend who was running a scholastic surf team and they, and I, you know, traded them for Ugg boots, you know, to sponsor them. And I just took my own camera and went surfing at Black's Beach and Trestles up in San Onofre. And these walks are about a mile to get to the water and, and great surf when you get there. And I just figured that, you know, hopefully all the little kids who read Surfer Magazine will want to be, you know, walking along this path with Mike and Ted, right? So, so just using my little you know, Canon sure shot, you know, I, I took some photos and I ran those ads with just walking to them from the beaches and the sales went to $220,000, right? From 20, right? Why? Because I finally figured out what it takes for great advertising and marketing is that you never sell your product. The The boots in the ad were, were like, in a, in a page like that, the boots were like so tiny, right? You could hardly see them. But I knew every little kid all across the country who reads Surfer Magazine would just die to be walking that road with Mike Parsons or Ted Robinson, you know? And that was the beginning of my understanding of advertising and marketing. And I, I, I paralleled that into snowboarding, the same thing. and 
back east, I had a bit of a problem because I didn't know, you know, nobody surfs or not much snowboarding. And, and I finally figured out oh, they play hockey in the winter, you know, and then, you know, the moms have to sit in the rinks and they're cold and the kids have to change shoes when they get there. And, you know, so it, by marketing to the youth all the way through, I was able to really build this into a, a passionate brand. And that that's what saved it was that if you didn't have a pair of Ugg boots at Malibu High, you were just not cool. And if you can extrapolate that to San Diego High and Phoenix, you know, all the way, and it was always a high school. It wasn't college, it was a high school kids because they got no money, but they can whine like, mom, all the cool kids at school have got a pair of Ugg boots. I want to, you know, so the money comes through through the parents, but the, the kids are the ones who really control the purchasing. I love that. I love that. Tell me about how you survived mentally during the years of, you know, like, how did you keep yourself focused? How did you pick yourself up? And, and tell me about, I mean, what was your lowest moment before you started to get the break, you know, started to feel like there was some traction. Yeah, there, there were so many lows. Um, the, the the first couple of years, I didn't really care. It, was, it wasn't ever going to be my big business. You know, I was working summer jobs and, 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 and I was just trying to get the company going because I the, the reason I didn't give up, like the first year I sold uh, 28 pairs, right? <laughs> Right now, that's a good sign to give up. But I, I just bought, I just bought five hundred pairs, so I couldn't give up because I had all my investors' money tied up, you know, in the in the bedroom, uh, with another four hundred eighty pairs. But um, I, I had my first real big disappointment when I'd I'd been through several investors that that couldn't, you know, I started growing and like doubling every year and the small investors I had couldn't bankroll the next round of purchasing, right? And the new investors I'd find didn't want the old ones. So I had to do a deal to buy them out. And now I got new ones. And this happened a couple of times. And I finally got these guys up in Anaheim, um, who were going to bring in a container load and, and bankroll, but they were also going to run the the warehouse and the purchasing and the collect, you know, the collections and all that. And I was going to be a full-time salesman now. And this is like five or six years into the business. And the deal we made that we were all going to share the company 25% each. Right. But I didn't, there was a clause that I didn't get my share certificate actually issued until I finished up a trademark lawsuit that I had with his other little company. And I knew I'd win that. So we did the deal together and we moved all the product into their big warehouse distribution center in Anaheim. And, and like, after we got it all set up, I went back on the road to, you know, down to Huntington beach to one of my good surf shops. And, and I walked in and the guy says, Hey, Brian, I heard you sold the business. And I went, what? He said, yeah, I called an order in this morning. They said, you don't own the company anymore. I said, you kidding me? They said that. And I couldn't wait to get out to the Shell gas station next door because this is before cell phones, right? And I called up Neil at Anaheim and said, Neil, what the hell are you telling people? He said, what do you mean? I said, you're telling them I don't own the company. And he said, well, you don't. And I said, yes, I do. You're my three new partners. 
And he goes, well, no, you know, technically you don't get your stock certificate issued. And, you know, and I just hung up and I went back to San Diego straight away and I pulled out the contract and I read it and I reread it and I thought, oh, shit, technically I'm not an owner of the company. And I just went into this humongous depression and for like three or four days, I didn't talk to anybody outside, you know, the house, just my wife. And uh, I think it was about the fourth night, you know, I uh, was watching TV. I was lying on my back on the living room floor and my wife was on the couch and when the TV finished, I clicked it off and, and I rolled over on my stomach and got up on my hands and knees and I started crawling to the bedroom, right? And Laura, my wife, just looked at me and says, you get up now and walk to bed like a man. And she scared the crap out of me, right? <laughs> and she yelled, you know, and, and like as I came up, it was like coming out of a fog and I just said, oh my God, there's so much more to life than this crappy little sheepskin company. And so that night I slept like a baby and I'm going to answer the question you asked me now, how did I come back from that shit? Well, I'd bought a book on, on yoga way back in, in the late seventies and, and just doing the yoga stretches made me breathe really, really hard cause they burnt and that led me to meditation. So, so I've now got a couple of years of meditation in me. And so I was sort of wondering, okay, what will I, what will I sell? You know, what will I do with my life? Um, you know, real estate, no business broker, maybe accountant, never, you know, and, uh, and then I thought sales, I love sales. And I got these goosebumps, which, which I relate to all through my book is every time I get these goosebumps. Right. And I thought, Oh my God, I've come to love sales. And now what can I sell? And, I thought, and in the in the beginning, you didn't like sales. You were you were oh, intimidated. I was terrified of sales. Yeah, yeah, it took a lot for me to get on the road. But I'm just you know because we got a short time here to talk about it. I um, the the bottom line is I, I just ate humble pie and I went back to the guys at Anaheim and I said, look, I may never own this company, but I tell you what, I'm going to try and get a pair of UGG boots on every single person in America, and so. We agreed that they wouldn't tell anybody else that, that, that I'd sold the company because I, you know, I didn't care about the deal. I just didn't want all the, you know, store owners to, to think that. So went back on the road and, you know, after a, a month I came back and, and Neil handed me a, an envelope. It was a check for $5,000. He said, that's your commissions, right? And that's the first money I ever pulled out of the business. That was five years into it. And then the next month I got back as a check for 10 grand, the next month a check for 10 grand. And the philosophy that I use in when I speak from stage, I have a slide that says, you know, nearly always your most disappointing disappointments will become your greatest blessings, right? So you can imagine how disappointed I was losing the company and realizing I didn't even own it. But I had a choice then I could have just walked away. You know, I could have started selling cars or something, right? But no, I chose, this was my passion. I knew how many people in America, America, you know, the potential market. And I just decided, no, I'm going to go for it. So 
Eating humble pie was a bit of a tough call at the time because I, I was really bummed that these guys were treating me this way. But nevertheless, the bigger picture is where I gravitated to. And that's, you know, when, when you have that vision, the, even the guys in the office in Anaheim, they never had the vision. It was all dollars and cents and transactions. But I had the vision of seeing everyone in America, everyone in the world actually, wearing a pair of Uggs. And so it was that, that sort of uh, defined all of my struggles was, you know, damn it, I'm not giving up. Talk about a character, character developed, developing moment and a testament to your character. I, I was pretty blown away by the story. Also, you started making some commissions and finally making a little bit of money and you agreed Tell, tell, tell me the story about how you agreed to invest in a buddy's company. I was, I was making a lot of my, like over the next three years, I, I had 30 sales reps all over the country. And I put up one and a half million frequent flyer miles just traveling with them to all. Each rep had to have their 10 best customers we'd visit. So I, I was like seeing 300 retailers across the country every year for three years and making so much money. Like at that time, you know, a couple of hundred thousand dollars was huge money, right, back in the 80s. And, uh, yeah, there was a, a, a you know, a, a, an Australian guy that I, I tried to get him to invest, but he never did. He was from the hotel industry, very successful. And he used to say to me, Brian, you know, if I gave you money, I wouldn't see you until you needed more. <laughs> and he was sort of right, because I, I was pretty much, you know, a loose cannon. But um, he had this other guy bugging him to invest in this little computer business. And, and so we agreed to put 20,000 in and I didn't have the 20 grand. Um, so he bankrolled the front end of it. And I started working with this guy and realized after a few months that, that, you know, the technology had technology that he was pushing was irrelevant now because there would be so many, you know, the, how fast the, the, you know, the new applications for technology came on. And so I recommended to Alan that, that uh, um, you know, I don't think this is a good deal. I, I don't think you should put any more money into it. And, and we were going to put 40, 40 each. That's right. He put his, his 40 in. And we paid salaries and it just never went anywhere. And then so we, he agreed and so we wound it up. And then, you know, I was broke at the time because it was summer and, you know, you don't get many commissions in the summer. But when fall started and we started shipping product again, I started making all this money. And, you know, nine months later, I went back to Alan and I said, listen, Alan, um, I know you put your 40 grand in and so here's 20 to you know my share and he couldn't believe it right <laughs> and yet it felt fair to me that we made a deal and okay i'm ponying up for my half of the deal and so you would think that that might be the end of the story but when it comes to character he saw who i was by doing that right now, fast forward about six or seven years and we're doing, you know, like eight to 10 million and I really needed more financing. And I went back to Alan and I said, listen, man, I got all these orders. I just can't, I need to get the production started in Australia. Well, 
he came in and was my investor. Now, he would never have put, and, and the amount of money was now in the millions, right? Not the 100,000. He knew that my character was such that I wasn't going to screw him, right? Or take the money and run because I'd already proven to him that, that I, you know, gave him money when I didn't even, you know, most 90% of people would have walked away and said, shit, I you know, dodged a bullet, you know? But, but that's where character comes in. And that happened over and over and over. I mean, even my retailers, there were times when they saved me. You know, if we've got time, I can tell you another story about that. But I would love to hear it. Yeah, we have time. I, if you if you would share it. I mean, to me, the, the testimonies of when character matters, you know, shows up, you know, uh, I think it helps us all every day. You know, uh, in the little decisions we make that end up being consequentially big later. Um, I'll try and be concise with this other story. This is fast forwarding now to when we're doing, oh, eight to 10 million, right? So it's pretty big, you know, operation by now. And uh, my Neil had bought the other two guys out. So Neil owned 100% of the company. And he'd called me up to say, hey, Brian, you know, you finished that trademark lawsuit, come in and we'll, we'll uh, issue you 25% of the company, you know, and I, I was in heaven. And I was out at the weekend and, and my cell phone rang, it was in, you know, a size of a brick, you know, with a cord that went into the car. And it was my wife and she was crying. She's, oh, Brian, Neil's just died, right? And, uh, in the preceding couple of weeks, you know, I saw he was in, you know, he'd walk up the stairs and have to sit down for a while, but it, it didn't matter because, you know, we, we'd agreed to issue my stock and we bought life insurance policies on each other and we took out, you know, company cars and everything. So everything was like great. And now I just find out that Neil's died. He was in a motocross race and had a heart attack. They couldn't revive him. So fast forward through this, the rest of this season, I'm trying to hold the company together for no pay. I promised his widow she'd never set foot inside the you know the business. She had no idea what was going on. So I gave her a, a year for me to figure out if I could save it. And I didn't take a salary for a year because I had all these leftover commissions coming in. And uh, man, that was a tough year. But the bottom line is my supplier, who I'd been with, I'd started with him like, you know, 12, 13 years ago. And uh, he didn't think I was going to be able to pull it off financially. And long story short, I found it like that. This all happened in February. So March, April, May, June, July, I'm trying to get funding, writing business plans. The banks are telling me it's a fad. We won't be around anymore. And I was, you know, working in Anaheim all this time. I, I was chronically sore throat every time I got home on Friday night to San Diego. And the, the uncertain part was that my supplier wouldn't give me a direct answer on whether he'd started production or not. And it turned out to, to be July. I, I ended up getting an interest from a, a tannery in Australia to bankroll me. And I went down there and the bottom line is he really loved the idea of working with me and we had four or five days of meetings. But in the end, he just said, look, it's too risky. You're in America, I'm in Australia, it's a lot of money. I'm just not gonna be able to do it, right? 
So I went back to San Diego and found, you know, my first person I saw in the office, my sales rep for, for Southern Cal said, there's a company out here selling sheepskin boots and they claim they're going to be putting UGG out of business. And, you know, I, I just got, you know, it turned out to be a windsurfing company. And I just, when I found that, I just, I just threw the magazine, you know, the trade directory and said, I got bigger problems, you know. And so it's now October and, uh, sorry, September, and the big trade show kicks off in Long Beach for the ship, you know, the winter shipping. And we had this huge booth space there. And I said to my wife, look, I don't know where we're going to get product from still, but I don't want to any let anybody know we're out of business, right? So let's set up the show and let's uh, put all last year's product on the tables and we'll pretend we're in business. And, and uh, so we ended up having a fabulous, wrote a quarter of a million dollars worth of orders, which I knew we were not going to deliver, right? And my wife and I had, had decided that, you know, well, well back to the show, I, I knew that this other company, they were called Thunderwear, they were the windsurfing company. And I said, wonder where they are. And I walked back and it, back in the, in the corner of the show. And there was all my product from my supplier in their booth with the, the labels were thugs, you know, for Thunderwear, they shortened it to thugs. And, and when I saw that, I realized, oh shit, you know, my supplier's done an end run around me. And he's picked up a new distributor and he never came out and told me, which was a real bummer, right? And so that's when I realized, oh, I'm out of business. So getting to the point of this story, we went back to, you know, packed up the show, went back to San Diego and I, my wife and I agreed we we're going to call all of our best customers and tell them to buy the thugs because uh, it's our product with different labels. and. The last call I made was to the guy in the tannery in, in Melbourne, Australia. And I just said, hey, thanks for, you know, putting in all this time. You know, I know we tried really hard, but, but uh, you know, George has done an end run around me and we're not going to be able to, um, you know, make any deliveries this year. And he was sad. We, we hung up. And then like two o'clock in the morning, the phone rings and it's Gordon and he says, Brian, screw George, I'll get you all the boots you need. And just like that, without a handshake, without a contract, without anything in writing, you know, I sent the patterns down the next day and he duplicated them and sent them out to five different manufacturers and he cranked up the tannery to maximum production. And the bottom line is we, we got about, oh, five, ten, Every Friday morning, we get 5,000 pairs. So that's October, November, December 20. We got 100,000 pairs, right? We needed 200, right? But the point is, um, we survived, you know? The product wasn't good looking because we had five new companies starting from scratch, you know? But the product we shipped out had UGG labels and and I remember sitting there between Christmas and New Year in the office because everything just goes just silent. You know, there's no phones ringing. There's nobody in the office because, you know, it's too late to give, get boots to the stores for Christmas, right? So I was just thinking how, how lucky I was that we survived that year. And then the phone rang and it was the life insurance company. And they called up and said, 
You know, even though you guys never took the medicals, we want to get this off our books by December 31. So me and my lawyer went up there and we, we ended up getting enough money from the lawsuit to buy his widow out 100% of the company plus give her all the profits for the year. And so now I was totally broke, but I owned 100% of Agaget, right? You know, how, how could you ever see that? Now, that comes back to character because I had a choice. You know, when he did that in a run around me, I could have just walked away and said, well, that was an interesting few years. But I kept, I, I didn't want my staff to know that we we're out of business. I didn't want the customers to know we we're out of business. And the bottom line, nobody ever knew all that shit that was going on behind the scenes. Um, you know, the retailers were a bit, you know, bummed that they didn't get half the product that they ordered from me and the quality wasn't great, but, but they all found out, you know, they heard on the grapevine what had happened. And here's the interesting thing. Um, the customs brokers screwed up. At that same time I went up to LA for the life insurance, the, the customs brokers screwed up and sent about 4,000 pair of thugs to me and 2,000 pairs of my Ugg boots up to them. And they were up in San Clemente, which is you know, 35, 40 minutes away. And so I arranged to go up and swap them out. And as I was driving home, I was thinking, you know, how come we couldn't keep boots in our warehouse for 24 hours? Like every Friday morning they'd arrive, we were empty Friday afternoon, right? The thugs warehouse, which was bigger than our warehouse, was floor to ceiling full of sheepskin boots after Christmas, right? And I learned pretty soon that all of my, my, my retailers refused to buy the thugs, right? All across the country, because I'd had three, four years traveling to meet every single one, like hundreds and hundreds of, of retailers across the country. And they all just stood behind me and said, well, I'm gonna buy the thugs, you know? And they threw away, you know, double the amount of orders, because they could have sold double but that that again comes back to character you know i what were my choices easy one walk away hard one how do i do it well it's kind of cool that they chose not to go with the thugs of the industry you know uh i mean they that, that name is very telling but this is the thing that's striking in that that you know it's almost like you had to walk away. It sounded like you actually had, you know, literally had called people, but you let it go, you know? And it's almost like, and this may sound weird, but it's almost like living with character or behaving with character takes a certain amount of faith because, because, because you don't know if when it might come in and, and help you out later on in life. You have no control over it. That's right. Yeah, faith is the, the most uh, empowering thing, right? The, the, on the surface, what, I could have given up so many times, but my faith was this. Half the, American, half the Australian population wears this sort of product, right? So it's not the product that's wrong, it's me. What am I doing wrong, right? So that was... The first thing, the, the, I had faith that the product was the right product, right? So then it came back to, well, what the hell am I doing where I'm not successful? And then 
I used to meditate all the time. You know, it's been ever since I found that yoga book in the late seventies. I've, I've, I still meditate even today, right? Um, and that's where you can sort of center and and come back to the calm. And then I totally believe because I talk about goosebumps every on, on the stage all the time. I tell them, hey, you know, God's not out there at the end of the universe somewhere. There's a fragment or some part of spirit of God in every single one of us, right? And it it's our radar, it's the right and wrong radar, it's it's the conscience, it's 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 real and it has a mission for where it wants us to go in this in this life, on this planet, right? And too often we're trying to meditate to some God out there, you know, but really we I've learned to meditate to try and connect with the spirit that's in me. It's me, it's, it's, my, it's who I really, really, really am, not this physical body I'm walking around in, right? It, the real spark of Brian Smith is that spirit. And the more I'm able to sort of come in and get calm and connect with it, it's amazing how all the problems outside sort of lessen, they, they sort of fade, and you start to get direction on new things. So. It's, you know, it's easy for me to say this to your listeners, but I've been doing it for so long. But if you can try and go inwards and try and connect with that, that spark of God that's in you, you'll be surprised at how powerful that is and how many solutions will come to you from just taking that quiet time to meditate. Tell us about what you're doing now. I mean, uh, tell us about I mean, you mentioned a couple of times that you do speaking engagements. What's Brian Brian doing these days? I wrote the book, The Birth of a Brand, right? And it's it's like a roadmap for entrepreneurs, and it it, it does it. There's no graphs or you know pie charts or you know tests or anything. It's just a whole series of stories, like the ones I've related today. They're some of the biggest stories, but there's tons of stories in the book, and each one has a lesson that I learned going along. So it's very philosophical. There's a lot of spirituality in there because I, I have such a strong faith in God and this this spark inside me that 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 sort of spills into the book as well. But it's really practical too, Brian. I mean, yeah, it is no, no, incredibly it, yeah. practical. In, 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 in fact, I, I wrote that in 2014. And this, in 2020, I decided to do the audio. And I thought, okay, this is my chance to update the book. And I'm going to rewrite this and correct this. And, you know, I didn't change a single word in the audio it i just realized oh my god this is a classic you know these lessons are timeless because they still have they apply to every audience and so to answer your question what am i doing today everybody kept saying oh my god you should be on the stage talking about this book and i'd never ever wanted to be a public speaker but now i it's been 15, 17 to so that's like five years five and a half years i've been speaking and now i'm all over the world like last year i was in india uh, nepal egypt costa rica philippines and not not to mention all the u.s you know uh, entrepreneurial groups that i speak with so it's speaking is now something that i've come to really love because i can tell the stories to bigger audiences 
and in, uh, expose them to the book so that they can, you know, pick up. And even even last uh, the last talk I had was in uh, Fort Worth, right, last week. And and this week I get a a message on LinkedIn from some girl who was in the audience just telling me, oh my God, I was about to give up my company, you know, but now I realize I'm in the infancy stage and you've given me new inspiration and I'm really going to work to make this happen, right? And so when, when I get stuff like that and I get it all the time, I get messages, I get, you know, emails and everything. And especially after I talk, uh, I, people come up, go, "Oh my God, that was so powerful! You're so real." Because because I don't tell all these bullshit stories about millions and stuff. I, t I talk about the heart wrenching. <laughs> oh God, when this happened, this is what I did, you know. And people relate to it because they're in the trenches as well. They're, they're, there's nothing I've experienced that they haven't experienced. To this, you know, maybe the level's different, but the same issues uh, and i bet with you with you building your business you've had the same issues oh i've had the exact same issues in the round like you were trying to show that there's a way to invest on the basis of behavior and that it actually matters you know we're the yeah. first of our kind right i, really, I really... love that concept uh, i think you're going to be really successful with that yeah well it, I, I just know it in in and for those of you that haven't read the book, Brian does this wonderful analogy of a business like a, a child. Can I tell the theme of that? The, 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 the theme is that you can't give birth to adults, right? If you look at the stock exchange page in the Wall Street Journal, every single one of those companies started with like a thousand, like 28 pairs, like was my starting year. They all started with something similar. And now they're all the biggest companies in the world. But every business, you, someone has to conceive the idea and then you take the first action and that's the birth. So the birth of Arg was me buying some samples from Australia, right? And then every business just goes into this horrible infancy and it just lies there and it lies there and you've got to keep feeding it and you're changing the diapers and you, 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 know, you, you wonder if you've done the right thing. But... An infant can't get up and go to college, right? An infant has to be an infant, right? But if you get through that stage and you don't give up on your dream, you'll start to toddle. And that's a great phase because the magazines are writing articles about you and your first true believers are telling all their friends about you and your product or your service. And that eventually gets into the youth phase, which is the best of every business. You've got consistent production, Sales and marketing's working, administration and cash collections is working, the warehouse is shipping. And you can run a $20, 30000000 million company in that youth phase. But if it's a really great product or a really great service like Agua's eventually, you get sort of sucked into these teenage years. And you, you recall on a Saturday night as a teenager, you want to be in every party in town, right? Well, it's the same in business. You want to be in every mass retailer and you want to be in every major trade show and you can just suck your cash out, you know, and go bankrupt so fast if you get into that, that mindset. But eventually, the, you know, the accountants put the controls in and you become a mature company. So, yeah, that theme is, is where so many people come up to me afterwards and go, oh, my God, I, I was about to give up, but now I see I'm in the, 
you know, the toddling stage or the youth stage. And it's really, really cool. It, it kind of takes away the burden of saying, man, I should be this, as opposed to saying, I am this now. And it's part of the evolutional curve of maturity that enables me to grow up into an adult, you know, like to, to expect my business to all of a sudden skip a stage of growth is, is just silly almost. And, and you make it so relatable. It is. And I, I've seen companies in this pandemic that um, like when COVID first started, I saw companies get, you know, 15, 20 million dollar grants to find a cure or, a, you know, a, a vaccine or something. And three years later, they have nothing. They never made it to market. They've spent $15 million and they never got FDA approval and the money's just gone, right? Because they didn't have roots to build on. Like any trees, you know, the, the, the growth's happening underground as well as going upwards, you know? And these companies that come in with, with you know, like if I had had a million dollars to begin UG, I would have probably spent 900,000 on those stupid ads that I was running that were, that were pissing more people off than bringing into the company, right? They were like, I was actually damaging my brand by running those ads. But I would have lost 900,000 and then had to sort of scrape it out and knew with the other. So yeah, you can't, you, you know, every business should start small and grow and that, the longer and deeper the roots are, the, the more success you'll have. I've got two final questions. And I, I mean, I feel like we could go for a couple hours. I, I just, it's just so, it's so fun uh, talking with you. For those that are struggling, those that are like in the trenches, whatever this topic that they might be dealing with, it could be an entrepreneur, it could be an, what are some of the like two or three things that you would advise people to think about or do differently or be encouraged by? Sure. There should always be an evaluation phase, you know, reevaluating this, you know, am I right here? And the, the main thing is get started, right? Don't wait till it's perfect, right? I, I got a friend who started Constant Contact. He was one of, he, he was the salesman. The, the three engineers wouldn't let him have the product because it wasn't perfect and he eventually like didn't steal it, but he took a bunch of copies and gave it to his friends and they started using it thinking, wow, this is great. But we got, and all the bugs that they fed back, you know, they finished that in, in like months, right? Had he waited till they were perfect, they probably would never gone to market, right? So number one, start. Number two, keep reevaluating. Like the first store I went into, at the, you know, the surf shop said, oh, you're going to make a fortune. When I went back to get an order, he said, oh, we couldn't sell them in our store. They're too expensive, right? So that reevaluation took place and we had to figure out how to make it work there. Um, the, the main thing though, is that you continue, you persevere. And that's probably the strongest word I can use. And there's a beautiful piece of philosophy in my book, which characterizes this struggle and it's it sounds really trite but it's the most powerful piece of philosophy in my book and it goes like this the quickest way for a tadpole to become a frog is to live every day happily as a tadpole right 
And I promise you in a year's time, anyone listening to this, they'll remember that and not much else of our conversation. But if you, if you, if you look at the first five years of me just trying to figure out, you know, getting summer jobs for three years and then finally, finally working out that the marketing uh, was to get these cool young kids, right? It's, it's identical to having influencers on, online today, right? I had influencers who were young surfer kids, right? So the principle's identical. But um, I took nearly five years before I hit that formula where it went out and we made a couple of hundred thousand in sales. But I recently read uh, the book called Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. Love it. Great story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Would you believe that I learned that the first five year sales of UGG was greater than the first five year sales of Nike? <laughs> right. So as bad as I was doing, that. yeah, as bad as I was doing, they were doing it worse. Right. But it, <laughs> it highlights that you can't give birth to adults. Reebok's the same story. Like I, I was watching all these other companies. So the quickest way for a tadpole to become a frog, just live every day happily as a tadpole, meaning day by day, do your best, do your best, do your best. And eventually things will change and you'll, you know, you'll start to be big. I love that. It sounds like a Ted Lasso quote almost. The book, yeah. <laughs> so real quickly, as we wrap up here, tell us how people can get a hold of you for speaking engagements um, if, if you're open to them. Yeah, my uh, website, um, I got two, two links. It's either UGG founder, that's UGGfounder.com or BrianSmithSpeaker.com. They both end up at the same place. And if you go to the speaking page uh, in there, you'll be able to find out how to contact me. Uh, you, my email's there, phone number's there. And yeah, I love speaking with entrepreneurial groups or, you know, big companies who have like a national sales uh, meeting and you want to amp, you know, the salespeople up because my story, even though it talks about a lot of down things, there's some incredibly positive inspiration that people walk away really highly charged from. So that's probably the best way to get to me is through ugfounder.com or briansmithspeaker.com. Well, uh, thank you so much for being on our show. I mean, it was just a treasure. And you are, um, you know, it's one thing to have a story and it's another thing to be willing to share it with others so that others can benefit. And I just I just really appreciate your willingness to do that. And uh, and it's just an honor to, to have you on, honor to know you now and uh, keep going. And guys, get his book. I'm telling you, you will love it. I put in a, it's a great read. I think because people aren't sure I'm going to be around next chapter. You know? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, Brian. Okay. Have a great uh, day, Dan.